Welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Clay Grove, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, and with me today is Chris Brew, sitting in the co-host pilot seat. Hey. I didn't realize I was going to be co-host and co-pilot. I thought I was just a guest. Yeah, you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> this is how the Fish Nerds works. This is how it rolls. In fact, we're recording now live uh, at a swimming pool in North Conway. So at any point now, you're going to hear my mother-in-law moving chairs around or you're going to hear the kids splashing in the pool or all kinds of other uh, interventions. I may dart off uh, without any notice to save my daughter from the deep end. But oh, but that'll be great for the show. That'll be dramatic. Yeah, for an audio show. We can make that happen anyway, just to add some sounding splash effects and kids crying. <laughs> it's perfect. Stay tuned. You never know what's going to happen. All right. Hey, so uh, today's show, Chris is here because he made a documentary uh, about White Mountain Tunnel Brook, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, Hugo is going to visit us. Uh, I'm going to ask you one question. Have you ever thought about eating fish sperm? Uh, do I have to answer that honestly? Honestly? No, I have never. Never. <laughs> All right, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fair question. Um, neither have I, but Hugo, of course, has. Uh, in case you don't know, Hugo is our fish nerd's uh, correspondent for cooking, and he will eat anything. So. Yeah, I've seen like the, the salmon spawning, the milting, Yeah, and I never once thought, ooh, I wonder what that tastes like. Uh, yeah, me either. I'm like, oh, that looks delicious. Uh, anyway, uh, Doc Martin uh, does a little parody song for us, uh, an Imagine Dragon, Dragon song for us. And, of course, we have fish in the news. So we're going to jump right in. Chris Prue, who are you and why are you on my show? Uh, well, my name is Chris Prue. I am a video producer. I've been in the White Mountains for close to 20 years now. I manage a TV station called White Mountains TV, an affiliate of the Outside Television Network. But yeah, so I also, I produce a lot of media on the side. And one of the organizations I've been working with over the years is the White Mountain National Forest. So I think we're here to talk about one of the latest projects I've, I've done with them. Yeah. And I just kind of a little bit of background. I've known you for probably just before we had kids. I think we met just in before. parenting, birthing classes and you and I were the ones giggling a lot in the back whenever they showed pictures of girls. That was, that was you Clay. <laughs> Every time there was a diagram of how the baby would come out, you'd oh, be giggling in the corner. What and... a nightmare. Anyway, I'm so glad our kids are, are, uh, are bigger now. Yes. Uh, and we've been fishing together for years, except for, I don't think I fished with you at all since January. How's your fishing been going this year? My fishing has been awful, Clay. Um, I I don't know if this is the place to reveal this, but I don't even have a fishing license for the year 2017 oh, yet. That makes this me is so horrible. sad. We're more than half over. I know. Well, I like to, I like to, I'm kind of a crammer. I, mm-hmm. I you know, cram for the exam at the end and yeah. I'm going to fish uh, a thousand times a day from here on out. You're running, running out of time. All right. Well, I let's am. talk about your documentary. Um, this is the White Mountain Tunnel Brook. This is a White Mountain story. It's a story about legacy resilience, and a courageous decision. It's the story of what happened to Tunnel Brook Road. For decades, Tunnel Brook Road had been a gravel forest service road, running alongside its namesake, a typical White Mountain stream, in the White Mountain National Forest in the town of Benton, New Hampshire. The U.S. Forest Service manages the White Mountain National Forest for multiple uses, and Tunnel Brook Road fit right in. The road brought permitted logging contractors to timber sites, hunters deeper into the forest, gold panners to the river's edge, hikers to the head of the Benton Trail on Mount Musilock, and snowmobilers, walkers, and nature lovers closer to the places they love. Tunnelbrook Road had been many things to many people, and then one day, in late August 2011, 
light was gone. Tropical storm Irene uh, passed through New Hampshire in late August of uh, 2011. Um, in this portion of the forest, it dropped around four to maybe five inches of rain, and all the rivers came up, rivers and streams came up very high. All right, so that, that opening clip gives you a good background on the project. Now, what got you excited about this project besides being paid? <laughs> well, it, technically, it wasn't even really being paid. Uh, I had been working with the White Mountain National Forest on various projects over years to tell their story, to tell what goes on in the National Forest. The National Forest is uh, public land, and, and the White Mountain National Forest, the USDA Forest Service, manages it for... Uh, multiple use, which means you can recreate on it. Loggers can apply for logging permits, and it's a, it's a working forest. And we so get our, our Christmas trees there. You can buy a $5 permit and cut down a Christmas tree. The, the in, Charlie in, Brown trees in the, the forest. forest. <laughs> so it's it's not a park. It's not, uh, you know, protected for people just to, to kind of gawk at. It's it's meant for people to use. And they manage it that way, and, and there's been some changes, some you know, it, philosophies evolve over the years, and they wanted to tell their story of how their management philosophies are evolving. Um, so that's basically the you know the gist of this story. And what do I mean by how their management philosophies are I was ask evolving? That. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> uh, well, typically something happens in the national forest, like a, a weather event. Let's say there's a big rainstorm or a hurricane. Things get uh, destroyed. Uh, bridges get washed out. Forest roads get washed out, uh, rivers flood, the rivers change course, and things that people use for multiple use, like hiking trails and roads, uh, become no longer working. They, they, they become unavailable. And we have to fix them. You have to fix them. Well, that's the Forest Service. That's always been their reaction. We have to fix it. The people want this hiking trail put back. They want this access road put back. So we're going to put it back the way that it was. Well, this, I read once that the National Forest maintains na nationally millions of miles of actual road in the forest, like real like logging roads and other roads. Just like road maintenance is a huge part of what they do. It's huge. I mean, the White Mountain National Forest is about 800,000 uh, acres. Mm -hmm. And so, and that is crisscrossed by logging roads, by hiking trails. And a lot of this is infrastructure that they didn't build. They inherited this. The White Mountain National Forest uh, was officially established in 1918. And a lot of these... There's going to be a quiz later. There so is. These dates right. <laughs> a lot of these roads and uh, <laughs> there'll be plenty of opportunity to for people to, you know, chime in later and say, uh, yeah, that guy had all you, all the dates wrong. Yeah, the show is mostly true. Right. Mostly true. <laughs> Um, so 1918 is when it started and they inherited a lot of these roads, a lot of these bridges, these hiking trails from the logging days back at the turn of the century when everything was privately owned and the landowners were mostly logging barons, timber barons, and they put in roads, they put in hiking trails uh, as efficiently as they could without really planning too much and how this would affect, you know, the drainage systems or... And they didn't care at that time. No, they just wanted to turn a profit. Yeah. It was like, okay, I own, you know, 50,000 acres. How can I get the wood off this land as quickly as possible uh, so that I can turn a big profit and move on to the next chunk of land? Um, so that was what they inherited. And that's, you know, what people used over the years because that's what was there. Right. So bring us ahead. This, this actually comes up to now Hurricane Irene happens. Yes. And and tell us, before Hurricane Irene, what, what was Tunnel Brook 
light. Well, Tunnelbrook Road was kind of uh, one of the typical Forest Service roads here in the White Mountain National Forest. It was one of those that was built back in the days of logging. It was built right alongside a riverbed, in this case, uh, Tunnelbrook, which is in Benton, New Hampshire, kind of in the westernmost part of the National Forest. If you uh, ever think most people are familiar in this area with the Kankamagas Highway, which is Route 112. Nice pronunciation, by the way. It goes from uh, Conway in the east to Lincoln in the west. How do how do visitors pronounce it? Uh, wrong. Yeah. Uh, mostly it's Kankamagas. Kankamagas. Is what they yeah. say, Kankamagas. Uh, but it's Kankamagas. Uh, according, now, I've even had debates with people over this, um, but they think that the original Native American pronunciation of Kankamagas was Kankamagas. He was actually yeah. a, um, a Native American chief. Right. Well, you know, it's funny thing the about fearless it. one. You know, it's funny. It reminds me of like whenever I hear people like us trying to pronounce like Native American terms, and we're like, "Oh no, it's not Kankamagas. It's Kankamagas." Yep. I bet you in reality it sounded nothing like either of those. Probably. I've had you know, debates it's... with people over uh, Shakurawa, Chakurawa. Yeah. Well, it's like when your mother-in-law tries to speak Spanish. You're like, "Yeah, it's not working. <laughs> Just <laughs> we're never going to get it right." Your mother-in-law can hear you. She's know, actually looking right at us. It's, it's a. It's <laughs> This is a staple of comedy. Mother-in-laws in New Jersey are always funny. Right. So that's you always make fun when you can. <laughs> what does she mean? What does that gesture mean when she goes across her throat like that? Oh, I thought that was a finger she was giving, so I couldn't <laughs> tell. <laughs> Knowing to do that, you know, it's dangerous. So, so Tunnelbrook Road. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, again, built back in the, the logging days, and it was just built inefficiently. It, mm-hmm. Tourists use it in the last century, well, for really kind of four principal things. Um, some people used it for snowmobiling. It wasn't a huge snowmobile trail, but some did. Uh, so a lot of people used it to access Tunnelbrook for um, gold panning. Mm-hmm. It's actually one of the better, apparently, gold panning rivers really? in now the I National Forest. Really? I have a gold pan. We should go up there anyway. And If you're going to gold pan in the forest, it's pretty much the place you want to go, I'm told. Oh. And I've actually seen people doing it. So you know what? After this show, we'll follow up. We'll make a trip there. We'll do. We'll go fishing and we'll pan for some gold to fund the trip. Yes. Well, we're going to get to that part because I've okay. got a challenge for you. I know you love challenges All right, and quests. We'll get to that. Let's. We'll cycle back. Yeah. So um, it was used for gold panning. It, it's used for hiking. That was probably one of the principal uses uh, of acts. Of, you could drive up to the Benton Trail, which mm-hmm. goes up Mount Musilock. Um, and give so, us a region. Where is this in the state? Again, it's west of Lincoln. You follow Route 112. The quote-unquote Kankamagas Scenic Byway ends in Lincoln, but Route 112 keeps going All the way across. west. And yeah. you can go into Vermont on Route 112. But it's in Benton, pretty much the most uh, western point in the National Forest that, that you can get. If you know where Lost River Gorge is, mm-hmm. uh, it's a few miles west of Lost River Gorge. All right, I love, I love the Lost River Gorge. It's not one of the biggest, you know, tourist spots. Not yet. In the White once, Mountain National Forest. Once the dozens of listeners hear this, uh, people will <laughs> flock there by the ones. And <laughs> But I, I think that's one of the reasons it's the subject of the story is because it's a good testing ground. The Forest Service could uh, experiment, so to speak, without really getting too many people upset. But even though they were using this as a testing ground, they realized there would be some... Um, concern some um, some feedback from the public, and they wanted to get ahead of it. So they wanted to make sure to tell their story, and that's how this film came about. So getting back to Irene, uh, 2011, I believe, the storm came in. It was a tropical storm by the time it reached the White Mountains. It wasn't a full-fledged uh, hurricane anymore, but it did incredible amounts of damage in western New Hampshire was it surprisingly, and Vermont. Surprising, I think, because the damage was more so far inland from it. Like, if mm. you compare the damage... You know, on the coast of Maine, the coast of New Hampshire versus the, the National Forest. Right. It seemed like National Forest got a bigger hit from this 
than anything. Yeah, I, I remember being in Conway and we were expecting the worst, but we, it, it was not a bad storm at all. You go a few hundred miles west in Vermont, they had, you know, historic covered bridges washing down the river and... Uh, there was a lot of damage, especially in the White Mountain National Forest and the western edges. And Tunnelbrook received uh, a, a great deal of that. I think they estimated about $10 million of damage uh, to the National Forest. And this basically meant the river came up so high and flooded that it washed out huge banks. And actually, as we mentioned, the Tunnelbrook Road was built right along its edge. The riverbed actually changed course and Tunnelbrook Road became part of Tunnel Brook. The right. river flowed right into the road, and there was no discerning anymore between Tunnel Brook and Tunnel Brook Road. Yeah. And, and this actually, and, and Tunnel Brook uh, is, is known a uh, really good brook trout habitat, you know, prior to Irene. Is that correct? I, I don't know about really good Adequate. brook trout. It was <laughs> it was a typical White Mountain stream. It had its share of, mm. of brook trout in it. It was it was stocked, but like it, it was kind of a typical White Mountain stream in that it didn't really support brook trout to uh, either native or, you know, reproducing these hatchery fish, they were basically, you know, one and done. You'd stock them for the year and by the end of the, the season, they would be done because there was no place for these fish to hold over. Um, there was there was not an adequate enough um, spawning grounds for these fish because of the nature of, of White Mountain streams. Right. And so now we have an opportunity. We have to figure out what do we do with with this washed out road and with this brook that's changed course? Do we do nothing or do we try to repair the road or do we try to restore the river? So what, what, what do we do? Well, the, the Forest Service thought about it for quite some time. They said, you know, here's an opportunity. As mentioned, the initial reaction is let's put it back the way it was. That's Build the a way, new road. That's the way. Let's repair the road. So we'll get Tunnel Brook somehow back in its original riverbed. We'll repair the road so people can get drive up to their their trail hit their hiking trailhead again uh they can pan for gold they can snowmobile go for walks whatever it is they used to do we'll put it right back the way it was this takes a lot of money and looking at um you know the history of weather events in the white mountains and in this area and kind of the prediction of more weather events like this in the future because of climate change um they said, you know what, does it make sense? Uh, are, uh, we're going to have to keep doing this every few years. It costs millions of dollars. And is this the best thing to do? So they thought about it a while. They they sought the, the feedback of the public, which they do before making any huge mm-hmm. management decisions. They sought the feedback from other experts. In this case, they involved Trout Unlimited, who knows a thing or two about trout and mm-hmm. uh, natural trout habitat in the state of New Hampshire. Yeah, and that, by the way, nationally, that's a huge yes. organization. So yeah, they, they know their stuff. And based on this feedback, they decided, you know what, this is a good opportunity for a test. Let's, instead of putting it back the way it was, let's put it back the way it originally was. Or the way it should be. Before the logging barons, you know, cleared it out, built this road where it should never have been built in the first place. By the way, when you say logging barons, do you imagine guys walking around with capes and monocles? <laughs> or- <laughs> you know, and that is not, actually, I've heard some stories. They were kind of like rough and tumble guys, yeah. but it, you know, they had so much money. I, I could picture that kind of like the guy from Monopoly walking yeah, exactly. around. But, but like chopping trees down. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Getting some other people to, to uh, chop down trees. Um, so they decided, yes, this is going to, this is an opportunity for a test. And what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, let nature take its course and we're actually going to help it a little bit. And you'd think, okay, well, Irene came through, it pretty much damaged things and, and set the river course to the way it thought it should be. So what is there left to do? Well, the main thing is 
is take out culverts because that yes. was one of the main things that man did to that area. They put in culverts. And what do culverts do? Why are they there? Culverts are those big metal corrugated pipes that go uh, basically under the road when it's built so that tributaries, these small mountain streams coming down from the higher elevations, can flow through them and get to the main river channel. Otherwise, these you could never build a road there because the, the tributaries would keep washing them out, especially in periods of high water in spring and in, in rain events. So they had to rip these out. And Trout Unlimited, this was one of their the things they advocated for because Trout Unlimited does not like culverts because culverts is one of the main things that... Um, uh, that ruins natural trout habitat. It ruins the natural, um, stri- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The watershed. Right. The flow. So one of the reasons they said for, uh, one of the main things they cited was trout can't, don't spawn because in the main river channel, it gets hot during the summer. And traditionally trout would go into the, find deeper pockets in the tributaries and the cooler spots. And that's where they would spawn. Look for the shade of like fallen branches and, and that sort of thing to give them that, that spot, right? Right. And this is especially necessary because of, um, I believe they call it the neutered uh, stream bed that they have in this day and age because of the logging. All the streams we have now are a lot straighter, shallower, um, and they don't have the cover that these streams had historically gentrified (laughs) (laughs) yes gentrified river but they ran the logs down these rivers and they uh you know they put roads next to them so there's just been a lot of erosion over the years the rivers have straightened out and there's no place for these fish to hide so what happens is the water gets warmer than it has historically and there's less shelter than there's been historically and the fish basically uh they die off they there's no place to spawn they get too warm and they and they're there's less shelter from predators. They die off. So with the culverts removed, the tributaries become part of the watershed again, and the trout can go back to their traditional spawning habits and uh, ability to escape from the summer heat. Okay, so now they've, they've done all this work to restore the river. I've, I've watched the documentary. I'm not going to go into all the details of it because I would like our listeners to actually watch the documentary. We don't have to give it all away. Um, but what's the outcome? <laughs> We're going to give it all away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, well, well, the outcome is is we don't know what the outcome is. And that's actually where our quest comes in, Clay. I love it. You're going to help me find out the outcome. Now, this work happened over the course of several years, and it ended several years ago. The outcome is they removed all the culverts. Uh, they hired an engineering team to help uh, seed some, some, some natural areas in the river. Now, a lot of this would have happened on its own in Tropical Storm Irene put a lot of wood back in the river that was cleared out over the years and changed the river's course and made it more meandering um, like it had been naturally over the years. Uh, But there's still some more work that could be done. Now, you might say, well, why don't you just let nature take its course in general? Because it would take uh, a long time. Right. Who's got time for that? And taking out the culverts was definitely a needed step that um, that nature would have a hard time doing on its own. So in addition, they decided to seed it with some more wood to help create pools. Um, they, uh, they, they shored up some of the embankments, not with what they call riprap, which is like basically hard stone walls that keeps the bank in place, but they actually uh, reduced the grade of the embankment so that it was less prone to erosion, and they put more wood on the embankment, things like that. Things that would just basically help uh, spur the creation of natural trout habitat. Right, and I, and I saw some of this, and this looks like piles of fallen trees, but they're actually purposely placed where they're placed. So it's pretty interesting. And I've seen similar brook trout habitat built actually here in Conway as well. So it's 
it's not uncommon practice to build that habitat by by doing that. Yep. But and, this is a larger scale, right? And they exactly, and they had to do some work on the road. They they did what's called ripping the road to kind of you know over the years they had put down so much fill on the road because it had been washed out and then they needed to repair it. Yes, add more crap, add more crap. Exactly. Add more crap, so then, yeah. they needed to remove some of that crap and re- expose. That's the, a scientific word. The crap. Yeah. yeah, it's an acronym. I think it stands for something. Yeah. Uh, but they needed to expose the the organic material underneath so that the road would, you know, the the, the plants would grow again, the, the plant life, and that would help with the erosion because if you just left the road even in an eroded state, it's going to keep the, the, the sediment is going to keep getting washed into the river and it's going to change the stream bed in a kind of unnatural way. All right. So, so what's the challenge for me? The challenge is we have to go back. I haven't been back to the site since I finished this documentary and it was right after they finished the installation of the natural features. We actually had a pretty big rain event this past uh, spring, right, early the, summer. We've had a lot of rain all in the whole season anyway, but we had a bigger like individual like, event. Like right? three it's, inches in 24 hours or lot, something yeah. like that. So it's, I think it was Tunnel Brook's r- real first test. Good. And I think we should go out, yes. check it out, and uh, and bring the fishing poles. Because if this is working, we should be able to catch a brook trout. Oh, I'm in. And so I'm thinking maybe September. Uh, it sounds fabulous. And when the of, kids uh, are in school. Yeah. Quick, quick <laughs> sidebar. Uh, New Hampshire Public Radio's Outside In podcast just commented on this posting really? that I put up. And maybe we can invite them uh, to come out and fish with us. The more the merrier. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so anyway, just kind of a thought process. But then we know do a public challenge outside in to come with us. And well, Sam Evans Brown versus me on a fishing challenge. Ooh, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. And I can document it with video. Excellent. Perfect. See? Um, So I have heard, I I emailed a contact uh, regarding the the rainstorm we had and said, you know, how is it holding out any report on damage? And they said, yeah, there was pretty significant damage. Um, So I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure if. you know, because they, they, they put these pieces in to try to keep the sediment out of the river and to keep it from changing course. And maybe, you know, Mother Nature's too strong for that. And Or maybe it damaged what we think it's supposed to look like, but maybe it put it the way it's supposed to be. I mean, yep. we don't know where it's going to end up. I'd love to do this challenge in September with you. I say we put it on the calendar. We're never going to do it. Yeah, I, we got to do it in September because I think if, if this is working, there'll be pools in the river that weren't there before and we'll find some holdover fish that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Oh, I'm in. I'm so. totally in. So stay tuned to the Fish Nerds podcast for, for that follow-up. And if you haven't seen this video yet, which I bet you haven't, uh, this will be linked up at fishnerds.com with a with the video streaming right there. And of course, you can Google it up on YouTube and go to your website and see it too. Um, sure. Uh, actually it's not there now, but my that website, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like every media website is currently under construction, but there is a, uh, a borealisproductions.com if you want to check out some of, uh, the other things on there. There's more forest service videos and all sorts of white mountain stuff. Yeah. And by the way, I, this is the first, um, like production I've seen where you do documentary style stuff. I've seen some of the other work you've done and uh, it was fabulous. I oh, really good. enjoyed it. I was, I was actually a little surprised. <laughs> but, <laughs> so I really, I dug it. You didn't realize that could be so dramatic and suspenseful. Or serious. Right. I was like, wow, this guy knows some stuff. That was really well done. That was, it reminded me of like what uh, public radio does. So well done. Well, it was definitely, uh, you know, a, a, a work of love. It was great. And I'm excited to go in September with you because I don't know if you can hack it because you are, um, 
I like adventure fishing. Yes. I like to to repel off cliffs yep. so I can find a, a four inch brook trout. So you could find nothing. So I could find I, a, I've been with you a on four inch trips. brook trout. Let me describe a fishing trip with Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on Google Maps and I found a cliff that has a root branch banging over, <laughs> hanging over the water about twenty feet above. Get the fly rod. We're gonna climb. We're gonna hike down through the woods through poison ivy through brambles we're going to dangle upside down by our ankles and cast a fly in that pool for six hours and not catch any fish that's what my experience with fishing we use like oh i love it it's all yeah. about the hunt it's about yeah. identifying a potential uh, you know trout habitat that one pool in a 10 mile stretch of river that's gonna that's gonna have that you know four inch brook trout in it and uh and then see if you're right it's perfect well <laughs> let's, let's do it uh, by the way rich collins our, our fly fishing correspondent um reply to this thing. He said, uh, it's interesting, interesting because he was told the most of the fixes directly afterwards, after the um, hurricane, uh, in the area at the bridges and such were actually poorly designed. It will likely increase the probability of flooding in the future. They didn't plant trees, they just moved dirt. Not saying this is the case here. He has not heard any positive restorations post-Irene. This is Rich Collins. Do you hmm. know Rich? I, well, I, I know of him just through the uh, yeah. the Fish Nerds podcast. Um and uh, that's a good that's a good question. I think these things are again they're experimental, so they're one of the it's science. Yeah. So you've got to uh, conduct the experiment and then you know look at the results. And, and it could continue be years before it. we know uh, the results. And I don't think the Forest Service went into this thinking that they had the perfect fix. I think they you know did a fix maybe with what either funds allowed or uh, you know this was a, a first step in really kind of honing in their forest management practices and, and uh, philosophy. So. Oh, perfect. Well, we'll follow up, and Rich, I'm sure, will have some comments on that. And uh, Rich, by the way, wrote a big article for the Conway Sun post-Irene, and we'll post that link um, on our website as well. All right, next up we have Hugo, our fish nerds cooking correspondent, uh, with a really interesting story about cooking with sperm. Um, <laughs> if you've never considered cooking with sperm, maybe you, after hearing this, will still probably not want to do it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm so glad that Hugo is taking this hit for us because I'm out. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> And we're back. Okay, and here it goes back to um, the show I was describing before. So, guys, um, extra special treat today. This is, uh, I went out fishing my kayak on, uh, yesterday and uh, brought home a nice big fluke and some um, scuff. And uh, when I cleaned them out, you know, I go through the whole thing, check it all out. And I saw in the fluke a big, huge liver that looked awesome. And in the scup, there was the uh, milled sacs, which is, well, the sperm of the scup. So now I know that cod milt is, um, in some circles, enjoyed. There's a place in Portland that served it before. I've seen it on TV. I've uh, read about it. So I figured, um, to give it a shot, why not? And the fluke liver, I've made liver from uh, monkfish before. And it was uh, delicious. I love it. It's called on chemo. They serve it in uh, some Japanese restaurants, though it's hard to find. So we are going to take the plunge, see what we got. So you'll see it here. There you have it. So I rolled these up in cheesecloth in a, a sushi roller and steamed them for about 15 minutes. I did um, have them brined at first and then marinated in mirin, the sweetened uh, sake Japanese uh, wine. 
and a little quinoa there. Yeah, it looks fancy. Some wasabi and some uh, sambal ulek, the crushed red peppers. So, well, wish me luck. Okay, let's see. Oh, I put a little bit of uh, caviar, store-bought caviar on top. So let's start with the uh, fluke liver, plain, and see what we get. It's creamy. It's not bad. That's not bad. Salty. A little bit fishy. Different from Antimo. Not bad. Not bad. Not great. And let's see what the... Uh, Oh boy. Scup milled tastes like. Very mild. Yeah, real mild, slightly salty flavor. Very creamy. Not bad. Now let's try it with some uh, soy. Yeah. Oh, now it's even more salty. All right, I think I'm gonna have to drown this one in wasabi and hot sauce. <sighs> yeah, that's, ooh. Oh, a lot of wasabi. And we'll have some of the caviar. Well, interesting. Tried it. I'm not doing that again. I'm starved. I gotta get some, uh, some food. <laughs> Later, guys. I think we need some fish in the news after that last segment. All right, this is from the smithsonian.com. The headline is, Fish sperm might be the secret to recycling rare earth elements. I've thought that all, yeah. all along. In case Hugo's segment left a bad taste in your mouth, I'm going to add to it with the news here. <laughs> uh -oh. Japanese scientists have uncovered an unlikely source to aid in the extraction of recycling of rare earth materials. Um, this is filed this under awesome things you didn't know fish semen was good for. Rare earth metals, it says. Yes, what did I you say? You said materials. Well, I don't know how to I was going to ask you, what kind of materials are you talking about? <laughs> I'm so glad you can read. The DNA within salmon milt, or semen, has been found capable of doing, capable of aiding in extraction of recycling of the rare earth metals commonly used in technology from smartphones to wind turbines. So who knows? Fish sperm is responsible for your smartphone. It's always the last thing you'd suspect. Yeah. It's like, okay. There's like someone there saying, okay, what do we need to restore these rare earth metals? And there's somebody who goes into a trance and says, I've got it. It's, let's, let's, it's fish sperm. Right. And we, there may be a guy who just like every answer to everything is, uh, have you tried putting sperm on it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My clock radio is not working. Oh, uh, sperm on it. <laughs> like, how do you figure these things out? Who's the first one to try it? That's what I want to know. So, the Japanese. The Japanese, yeah. But they're kind of fun over there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll try anything. So, <laughs> so when applied to neodymium, which is the uh, one of the chemicals used in your batteries, 
uh, they, the team found that the salmon milt DNA made a strong bond with the metal, allowing its sub subsequent extraction following an acid bath or a spin through a centrifuge. So not only did they put sperm on it, they put sperm on it and then tried other things on top of it. You know what this yeah. is going to lead to? What's that? It's going to lead to our downfall. This is going to lead to a race of cyborg salmon. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that's what they're trying to, <laughs> they're to engineer. Yeah, I've got, my phone is a robot salmon. Yes, or something. Yeah. I don't know. That's really great. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really fantastic. I love it. I, I'm not even going to read more than it's that. It's pretty scary. What yeah. else do you need besides cyborg salmon? I don't know. Uh, so anyway, that's real news, you know. <laughs> that, was, that was from the Smithsonian, so you know it's, it's good stuff. Not fake. <clears throat> All right, but this is from uh, News Center. Female fish can favor sperm from preferred males despite external fertilization. Well, that's just logical. It's just logical. And yeah. so, you know, that the, the, the way that... <laughs> this is so noisy out here. <laughs> the way that fish, most fish sperm is they, when female drops the eggs and the males drop the milt all over it. And so what this is saying is that no, even though the male is sperming all over the eggs, the egg still can select out a different male sperm if multiple males are sperming on it. Hmm. The eggs can or the female can? Well, it says the female, but I, I believe it's the eggs because huh. the eggs are external, right? Hmm. So, biologists studying a small, colorful fish in the Mediterranean Sea have discovered a new way in which a female can choose the best father for her offspring. Uh, the animal kingdom is full of elaborate traits and behaviors by which females choose their mates, even in species which the male mates with multiple males. I'm sorry, but the female mates with multiple males. There's mating going on. I, it's, they're just like to do it. Biologists have found evidence of cryptic female choice involving mechanisms uh, in the reproduction of tract that influence which male sperm fertilized eggs. I just want to say you owe your marriage to cryptic female choice. Oh, man, because I, I sperm all over everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was, was going to go there. Uh, so female uh, wrasses prefer males that build nests and take care of their eggs uh, as they develop. But there's other type, types, types of males who do not take care of that. Those are called sneaker males. They sneak in there, they sperm on the eggs, and they swim away. Um, I've also always, sounds like you. Yeah, I've always always prided myself on being a sneaker, a sneaker male. A sneaker male. The females, however, seem to have found a way to thwart the sneaker males by giving an advantage to the nesting male's sperm. The sneaker males release more sperm than nesting males, and you'd think that would give them a better chance to fertilize the eggs, but there's something in the ovarian fluid that removes all advantage. So they've somehow figured out how to avoid these... Uh, Deadbeat fish dads. It's love. It's love. You can't you can't fight fish love. Yeah. So that's real fish news, man. And I got one more for you. Uh, also sperm related because I just, naturally the theme of this week's show. Do is, we owe this to Hugo? Thanks, Hugo. Hugo for set putting the us whole, down this this path. Set the whole thing up. And this is from NBC News. Is sexual health. They have and a it, whole sexual health department. They they do they do um, on their website because that's how people visit websites yes. now. Yes, it's it? probably the number one clicked department in their news if you don't yeah. have sex somewhere on your website you're yeah. gone that's why i'm making this podcast <laughs> put sperm in the title <laughs> uh, shooting blanks seven surprising sperm killers hmm. and by the way uh, as an old guy i don't care <laughs> i don't even care uh but it's funny all right so number one cash register receipts if you put really? too many in your pockets uh the bpa uh, which is the Bio, bicephanol A, which is a chemical in, in plastics, is coating this receipts, can, huh. get, can leach through your skin. No kidding. And impact your sperm counts. Now, this isn't fish sperm. This is this is sperm in general. This is human pe People sperm. People sperm. They don't really, um, fish don't really carry um, around uh, receipts very often. No. No. No, unless they're shopping. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how about canned foods? No, they can't possibly. They can. And it's the same reason, BPA. 
Hmm. They should just say BPA. Have a very short article. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sex toys. BPA. BPA. Yeah. Uh, your shower, like all the chemicals used in the shower, plus the plastic bottles are in, have wow BPA. So uh, produce, chemically laced with BPA. No kidding. No, not BPA, but pesticides. Can yep. Do it. Yep. Um, heated car seats because they heat up your beans and they cook all the sperm out. Wow. Yeah, but I've never been able to afford a car with heated heart car seats, so I would say having too much money uh, is bad for your account. <laughs> but finally, um, it's windy out here. Excuse the paper noises. Uh, there's, there's, they're emptying the porta potty over there. They're sucking it out, so I think there's like this. They're generating some sort of breeze. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely feeling the wind from it. Um, uh, contaminated fish, and this is because of PCBs, a group of toxic compounds used extensively in the electrical. Electrically, electricity industry. They are banned, but the ones that are already uh, out there remain in the environment indefinitely where they accumulate in fish. If you're a fisherman, that doesn't mean you have to give up eating your catch altogether, but you should look for cleaner waters to follow consumption guidelines to make sure you don't ingest too many sperm-destroying PCBs. So, uh, no matter, I'm just getting a very negative vibe about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I think no matter what, your sperm is, is in trouble. Good. So I, I say you just... You know, ignore these things and enjoy your sperm. Yeah. And, <laughs> and just, they'll live a short, but but yeah. good life. Yeah, sperm on everything. That's my motto. Take your, uh, I don't know, take your sperm to the amusement parks and... <laughs> no, don't, 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 don't do that. Well. <laughs> <laughs> don't take Chris's sperm advice. <laughs> no. No, he's no expert. I, okay. I am not. Let's, let's uh, wrap this up with a nice song from Doc Martin and some Imagine Dragons. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Doc Martin uh, does a little parody song for us on an Imagine Dragon song for us. So um, I got a pretty positive feedback when I did my weird owling. I think I just made that a verb of Jay-Z's 99 Problems into a fish song. So uh, I did another weird owling. Um, this is of um, the Imagine Dragons song radioactive so uh okay hey fish nerds (laughs) i hope you like this and laugh as much as i do Oh, 
So that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. We'd like to thank our families for supporting us while we podcast, go on fishing quests, and do all sorts of silly things that nerds do. If you would like to support the fish nerds, you can go to patreon.com and search for fish nerds to help us crowdfund this podcast. Special thanks to Chris Brew of Borealis Productions, Hugo Medeiros for this terrible, terrible show, and Doc Martin for making us feel better about it. And until the next time, I'm going to feel dirty reading this. Follow the code of the fish nerds. Spawn <laughs> early and often. Avoid free lunches with strings attached. Swim against the current every chance you get.
Mike, we're recording. This is podcast number 160-something. Chris Pru. 160-something. Wow. All right, so I got a little script here, but that's just for me. Okay. All right? Until the end. Then there's a script at the end we have to read together. All right? We have to read together. Read it together. All right. Hold hands while we say it. We can snuggle. Okay. Because you can, you can, I know you can edit this, but will you edit this? I do edit. Question. Yeah. Because I'm going to be rough, I think. You'll be fine. Okay. Uh, three, two, three.